0: Good morning, everybody. I'm really glad to see you this morning. I hope you have your Bible with you and that you'll turn to 2 Peter chapter 2. As you're turning there, I want to put something on your radar so you can be praying, uh, even, even this morning, even right now. Uh, our own Reed Roper is over in Marion at The Journey, uh, preaching God's Word there today about the role of uh, the local church in the global mission. Um, and he is there because two of their pastors are... Uh, in Central Asia with our friends, the O's, um, visiting them, seeing the work that God is doing there and seeing how they can partner uh, with them. And so um, our read is, is, is in Marion, uh, filling the pulpit there today, so be praying for him as he shares God's word with his people um, there. All right, 2 Peter is where we are today. Last week, we jumped back into our study of 2 Peter after taking some time away for Advent. It was good to be back doing what we do around here, that is expositional preaching, where we give an explanation and application of a particular portion of God's word. And that particular portion last week was 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, which is really the high point of a, of a big if-then argument that Peter started back in chapter 2, verse 4, by using three Old Testament examples that demonstrate the track record of God to, on the one hand, judge the unrighteous, and on the other hand, rescue the godly. This established track record of God is intended by Pastor Peter to encourage his audience as they face pressures, pressures like watching people they love go the way of false teachers and the temptation to go that way themselves, the very real temptation to walk off uh, the narrow path that leads to life and walk the wide road that leads to destruction. His audience needs to be reminded that though it may appear that the ungodly are winning, that will not be the case in the end. Judgment is coming. In fact, judgment is already happening in the lives of these false teachers. And it may look like the godly are losing, but that will not be the case in the end. That will not be the case in the end. The text said that God knows how to rescue his people, and he will rescue his people. He knows how to rescue you was the first bit of application. He knows how to rescue you from trials. Trials that you are facing, trials uh, that might tend to lead you off the right road. I asked you to consider what trials you are currently facing and find comfort in this text and a settling in your spirit to know that God knows how to rescue you. He also knows how to punish the unrighteous. We saw this quote from Dick Lucas that was helpful when he said, in the meantime, those who hold on to their belief in God must not lose heart because he has not yet vindicated himself, but he will. He will vindicate himself. And if you find yourself as one of the unrighteous, whom God knows how to punish and will punish in the end, then I invite you already today to repent of your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to know that every one of us who have experienced and are experiencing salvation from God were once enemies, were once his enemies, were once under his wrath, even as you are. But he rescued us and he redeemed us and everything changed one day. Maybe by God's grace, everything will change for you today. Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and find salvation. Well, this week we come to a text that I want to describe to you, like I described a text a few weeks ago in Matthew on Sunday night. I want you to imagine our text today is a thicket, and there are a whole bunch of rabbits hanging out in that thicket that are just waiting to run out. And when they do, we have a choice to make. We can chase them. We can chase them until we exhaust ourselves. Or we can stay focused on the main point. And I want you to know that chasing rabbits is fun. I spent a lot of time chasing rabbits this week and enjoyed it. And you might want to give it a try this coming week. For a few of them that I point out to you, you might want to run the road with them. But chasing rabbits can often lead you away from the main thing. And when that happens, chasing rabbits is not a helpful thing. And I want to be helpful to you today. I want to be helpful in the time that we have together. So a few times today, I'm going to say something like, hey, look, there's a rabbit. And I may even tell you that rabbit runs this way for quite some time. But I'm going to try to keep us focused on the task at hand. And I want us to remember that Pastor Peter is trying to help these people. Pastor Peter is trying to help his audience navigate the faithful path as false teachers try to lead them astray. And I want to help you do that today, too. Like, I want to join with Pastor Peter and help you walk uh, the faithful path while false teachers try to lead you astray. And so we're going to be really careful today um, that we don't run away from the main point as we chase some of these rabbits. So look at it in the text, 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 10 to 16. One of the things that may alert you to some of these rabbits is, is a dramatically different translation. Like if you, if you are not reading from New American Standard as I am today, uh, and we come across a phrase and you have something that's quite different, just know that's probably a rabbit. That's probably a rabbit in the thicket that's waiting to run out, and you could chase him for a, for a long time. Um, but make sure we're not running away from the main point. So let's read God's word together. Second Peter chapter two. Let's pick it up in verse ten. Actually, let's pick it up in verse nine. It says, "Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the flesh, in its corrupt desires, and despise authority, daring." Self willed. They do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. Whereas angels, who are greater in might and power, do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed, suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained for greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, follow, followed the way of ba- Balaam, the son of Baor, Who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but he received a rebuke for his own transgression, for a mute donkey, speaking with the voice of a man, restrained the madness of the prophet. Let's pray together. Oh, Father in heaven, we are thankful for this opportunity to study your word together. We ask for help, the help of the Holy Spirit to understand this text to stay focused on the big ideas, to not get lost in what is unfamiliar to us, nor to be distracted by our mere curiosities. We ask that you would use this passage today to affirm what we saw last week about the certainty of judgment coming for the false teachers and those who follow them. We pray that you will use the text today to guard our own hearts against going their way, that you would use the text today to keep us on the right path, to keep us faithful, by your grace, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we, we get our nose really, really close to the text today and look at it really closely like we always do, I want you to know that understanding the structure of this text today is going to help us big time in understanding the message of the text today. Right? Understanding the structure is going to help us understand the message. And if we were to chase any one of these elements alone, we might end up at the wrong conclusion. If we were to get a hold of one of these things and chase it all day, we might end up at the wrong place. We want to be careful to do that. So let's talk about the structure of the passage. The structure of the passage is really revealed in verse 9 that we looked at last week. When Pastor Peter said, The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Now, Pastor Peter's main point for his audience is that he knows how to rescue the godly. He knows how to rescue you. He knows how to keep you on the day of trial and temptation. The secondary point is that he also knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. He wants them to know that these false teachers and those who follow after them will experience punishment, whether they deny it or not, which they do. They say, oh, there's no second coming. Oh, there's no final judgment. Oh, all of this is, is nonsense. So we can live however we want. They may deny the coming judgment, but they can't deny the coming judgment. They can't stop the coming judgment. It is real. And so Peter is going to zoom in on that. That second part of verse 9 when he says, to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. And look at verse 10. He's going to elaborate on that day of judgment, the unrighteous being kept for the day of judgment. In verse 10, he says, and especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. So verse 10, at least the first part of verse 10, is going to expand the idea of the unrighteous being kept under punishment for the day of judgment, especially those who are involved in two things. Number one, sensuality. They indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires. We call that sensuality. And number two, arrogance. They also despise authority. All right? That's going to be the outline for the text that we're going to look at for the rest of the day. Right? He's going to elaborate on their arrogance first in verses 10 through 13. When he says they are daring, self willed, they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. Whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. But these like unreasoning animals born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed, suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. There, Peter is elaborating on the arrogance that he points out, right? They are super arrogant. They despise authority. And so he explains that in verses 10 to 13. And then In the middle of verse 13, he picks up on the concept of sensuality. That he said, especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires. He says, their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. They are blots and blemishes reveling in their pleasures while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, right? They never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. He goes on and on and on talking about their sensuality. He's going to talk about sex and money as two elements of their sensuality. He's going to talk about lust and greed as two elements of their sensuality. He's going to give us some details on that. And all of this, as he outlines their sensuality and their arrogance, and then he explains those in more detail, all of that actually connects back to verses one through three of chapter two. I'm trying to show you here that this dumb fisherman is building a really tight argument here. This is all very well connected. Look at chapter two, verse one, when he says, but false prophets also rose among the people, just as there also will be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying, even denying the master who bought them. That sounds like arrogance, right? They deny the master, the one who bought them and bring swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality. Right, That sounds like indulging the lusts of the flesh. They, many will follow their sensuality and because of them the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. He really set this up all the way back at the beginning of chapter 2. right? Um, so I want you to see how all of chapter 2 works together. Um, we spend a lot of time with our noses really close to the book, and sometimes it's hard to see those connections, but I want you to understand that because the structure, understanding the structure today will help us in understanding the message today. So let me remind you what verse 10 says. Chapter two, verse 10. As he's talking about the judgment of the ungodly, he says, especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and who despise authority. So basically... Peter is giving us here the outline of the condemnation of the false teachers. And he's going to elaborate much more in the verses that follow. And as he elaborates on it, he's going to be really upset about it. He's going to to just kind of get carried away in how upset he is about the sensuality and the arrogance of these false teachers. Michael Green said, Peter now launches launches out in a direct assault on the false teachers. And I love this last phrase, he says, he glows with moral indignation. Peter is not indifferent about this. He's not cold and clinical and sterile as he talks about this. He's fired up about it. He is lashing out, not merely as a matter of his temper, but out of his love for the Lord and his love for the people of God. Peter, as a shepherd, cannot bear to see wolves among the sheep. He cannot just be indifferent as he watches wolves move in among the sheep. And so he calls those wolves out. And he's going to focus on these two areas of criticism of the false teachers their sensuality and their arrogance. And he's going to give the great detail in reverse order. He'll deal with their arrogance first, and then he'll cover their sensuality. But before we dig into that, I want us to first notice the connection between their teaching and their living. These are false teachers. But he doesn't necessarily tackle the doctrine that they are teaching. He attacks the way they are living. And I want us to notice right off the bat that there is a connection. There is always a connection between their belief and their life. There is always a connection between our belief and our life, the way that we live. R.C. Sproul said this really well when he said, we do not make a connection between false doctrine and corrupt living. But the New Testament does just that. When truth is distorted or denied, when the truth of God is replaced by falsehoods of heresy, it inevitably and necessarily leads not simply to intellectual error, but to gross moral corruption. It's not just about intellectual error. That doctrinal error and heresy will always and necessarily, R.C. Sproul says, lead to gross moral corruption. And let me tell you, the headlines are full of this kind of stuff. Even today, churches and denominations who threw out the Bible years ago, probably about a generation ago, said the Bible is not authoritative. The Bible is not inerrant. The Bible is not inspired. We don't need to submit ourselves to the word of God. We'll just throw the Bible out the window. A generation ago, they did that. And today, they are embracing and celebrating things in the name of Jesus ...that Jesus himself directly forbids in his word. This is what happens. These two things are always connected. Right doctrine leads to right living. Wrong doctrine leads to wrong living. These two things are always traveling together. That's why we read in Matthew chapter 7... ...Jesus say, beware the false prophets... ...who come to you in sheep's clothing. You heard this a minute ago. But they inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits... Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit. The bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, and nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, so then you will know them by their fruits. He doesn't just say, you will know them by the things that they teach you. He says, you will know them by the way that they live. And that is why when we read in the New Testament... Character matters when it comes to leadership in the church. That's why when we read about the qualifications of elders or deacons, it's not that they know how to answer the test, the questions on the test. They know how to write about theology. It's about the kind of man that they are, about how they live their lives, about the quality of their character, because the two things are always connected. Character matters when it comes to church leadership. Let's recognize... The connection, the connection between teaching and living, the connection between doctrine and lifestyle, it is there. He starts by talking about their arrogance. Look at the middle of verse 10. Most, most translations, there's a paragraph break, and it's pretty good. It's a good paragraph break there. It says, daring and self-willed, they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. Whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring reviling judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed, suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. Oh, look, here's our first rabbit. In fact, there are about four of them in that paragraph that just are begging to run out. After calling these false teachers daring and self-willed or bold and willful or bold and arrogant, Peter says, they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. Now the word that New American Standard translates as angelic majesties is really tricky and it is the rabbit to chase. It's actually just the plural, plural form of the word for glory. If you, were just, if, you, if, if you were in Greek class and you were translating this You would probably just write glories there, which is why English Standard Version translates it as the glorious ones. Now, I read a bunch of pages about precisely to what or whom this is referring. Who are these or what are these angelic majesties? What are these or who are these glorious ones exactly? And there are no less than five camps. And in fact, they're probably more like 12 or 13 sub camps. People have written pages and pages. Each one of these camps labors to build their case. Some say these are good angels, glorious ones. Some say these are bad angels, demons, glorious ones. Some say these are church leaders, elders in the local church or apostles like Peter himself. Others will say these are doctrines around the return of Christ. Listen, this is a rabbit that you could chase for the rest of your life. In fact, you could probably make a living writing books about this one singular thing. And if you chase it, let me encourage you not to miss the point. Here's the point. Whatever it means, whoever or whatever the glorious ones are or these angelic majesties, whoever, whatever they are, here's what you need to know. The false teachers that Peter is attacking here, are so arrogant that they revile or blaspheme these glories and they do not tremble. They are not afraid, but they should be, right? Whatever the glories are, these false teachers will thumb their nose at them, they will revile, they will blaspheme, they will scoff, they will mock without any fear or any trembling at all, and yet they should be afraid and they should tremble. Their pride and arrogance are on display. They seem to have no respect at all for authority, whatever that authority may be. They seem to have no fear at all, and they seem to have no humility at all. By contrast, as Peter describes this, he says angels. In the next phrase, he says angels, probably a reference to good angels here, although we could chase that rabbit for a long time too. Angels are humble. Unlike these false teachers, angels angels are humble. Even though they have great might and power, as Peter says in the text, the angels have great might and great power, unlike the false teachers. And even though the angels are right, unlike the false teachers who are wrong, even though these angels have great might and great power, and even though they are right, they leave the judgment up to the Lord. They don't presume to issue reviling blasphemies themselves. They leave that to the Lord, which is the only proper thing to do because judgment belongs to him ultimately, right? It is not my job to cast that kind of judgment, to pronounce that kind of judgment. It is not the angel's job to pronounce that kind of judgment. That belongs to the Lord. And so angels rightly who have great might and power and authority and have a right view of things say, we defer to the Lord on this. While the false teachers will say, I will even say to any authority, you're wrong. Who do you think you are? You've got no right to say anything about me. The arrogance, the arrogance of the false teachers is contrasted with the humility of the angels. So what we're seeing here is truly a study in contrast to highlight the ridiculous and outrageous arrogance of the false teachers. Peter goes on. In light of their arrogance to illustrate the condemnation that is coming their way by likening them to unreasoning animals. He says that they only operate by the instincts of the flesh, which we know the instincts of the flesh are misguided apart from the Lord. They are guided by the instincts of the flesh and they will end up captured and killed in the pursuit of those instincts. Douglas Moo says... Like unreasoning animals destined only to be slaughtered, the false teachers in their unreasoning arrogance and sinfulness are destined also for the slaughter, namely the slaughter of God's judgment. He says, this is it. You are so arrogant, so misguided, that you're just like an unreasoning animal destined for the slaughter. And the slaughter is coming to the false teachers. It is the slaughter of God's judgment. Now the end of verse 12 and the beginning of verse 13 are interesting to me. I especially appreciate the ESV translation that says, they will also be destroyed in their destruction. In the destruction that they are bringing, they will be destroyed. Verse 13, it says, suffering wrong as the wage of their wrongdoing. In other words, what goes around comes around when it comes to these false teachers. They will reap exactly what they have sown. They think they're living the good life, but they're actually walking straight to their deaths. But maybe my favorite part, in all of the talk about the arrogance of the false teachers, my favorite part in this whole section is the middle of verse 12, when he says, reviling where they have no knowledge. They revile or they blaspheme, they speak where they have no knowledge. These false teachers have a lot to say about everything, even the things they don't know anything about. You know people like that? That are authorities on everything? and speak with arrogance and confidence on everything, whether they know it or not? That's exactly the way the false teachers operate. Jim Shattuck said, Peter's point is that the false teachers don't know when to shut up about things they know nothing about. Claiming to be wise, they are really showing themselves to be fools. Didn't Abraham Lincoln say something like that one time? Better to be thought a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. Well, these guys open their mouths all the time And remove all doubt that they are truly fools. The arrogance of the false teachers is on display. In their resisting of authority, whatever that authority is, they resist it and they don't worry about it at all. Their arrogance is on display in their incessant talking about things they don't know anything about. And bottom line is their judgment is sure. And so the application I want to make is don't be like them. Don't be like those guys. That sounds simple, right? It is simple. Be humble. If they are arrogant and display their arrogance in a number of ways and judgment is coming, then I want to see that and say, I don't want to be like them. I want to be humble. I want to be quick to submit to proper authority. I want to be one who is teachable, who has ears that are open. And the best way to keep my ears open is keep my mouth shut. Right? That seems to be a picture of discipleship, right? And that's what we're called to. In fact, this reminds me of a text that we prayed at the beginning of the year on a Wednesday night. We spent some time praying like this for 2023. Look at James chapter one, verse 19. James is so practical, right? He says, this you know, my beloved brethren, everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. That's what we want. That's how we want to live. That's what a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ looks like, right? Not like these false teachers who resist authority. They don't, don't get, they, they're not afraid of it at all. They don't tremble at all before any authority. They talk about everything like they know everything. And their judgment is sure. Let's not be like them. Then in the middle of verse 13, Pastor Peter transitions to describing the sensuality of the false teachers. Not just their arrogance, but their sensuality, their fleshliness. And he zooms in on two areas of that fleshliness, sex and money, lust and greed. Their lives are marked by these things. Look what he says. In the middle of verse 13, they count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. Having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, But he received a rebuke for his own transgression for a mute donkey speaking with the voice of a man restrained the madness of the prophet. Look at the way he describes their sensuality. He talks about reveling in the daytime. Reveling in the daytime indicates a certain shamelessness and pride that goes even beyond the pagans of the day. Most people, when they revel, when they carouse, when they party, they do it at night in the dark. But these guys do it in broad daylight. They revel in the daylight. They carouse in the daylight. They are proud of their sin. And they are bold in their sinning. Notice also Peter says they are stains and blemishes. That's super aggressive language. Especially in the context that Peter has been writing about stains and blemishes. Not just to say that they bring a stain or a blemish but that they are a stain and a blemish, which is the exact opposite of what Pastor Peter wants for his audience. It's also the exact opposite of what Jesus made them to be by his death and resurrection. Pastor Peter doesn't want them to be spots or blemishes. He doesn't want them to be stains. In fact, he declares in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 14, as he wraps this letter up, he says, therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found in him, by him in peace, spotless and blameless. What does Pastor Peter want for his audience? That they would be spotless and blameless. And he says of these false teachers, you are spots. You are blemishes. That's who you are. It's not what Peter wants his audience to be, nor is it what Jesus died to make us to be. Look at Ephesians chapter five. And let me just say this. Some of you are here today, husbands, just to hear this. Totally unrelated to the context that I'm presenting it to you, some of you just need to hear this. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Some of you husbands need to love your wives. That's the message that you need to hear today. But that's secondary to even Paul's usage of this image in Ephesians chapter 5. What he's actually doing there is saying, this is why Christ died for the church, to make her holy. To make her spotless, to present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Why did Jesus die for you? So that you could be a spot and a blemish? No, that you could be spotless and blameless. That's why he died for you. That's why Jesus died for you. And Peter says, of these false teachers, they are stains. They are blemishes. It's the exact opposite of what he wants for his audience. It's the exact opposite of what Jesus died to make them to be. It's the exact opposite of what I want for you. I want you to be spotless and blameless in Christ. Notice third, when they gather with the church, these false teachers, when they gather with the church, they are looking for someone to seduce. That's why why they go to church. That's why they go to the gathering. They're looking for someone to seduce. The language that Peter uses here is a rabbit that you could probably chase for a while when he says they have eyes full of adultery. A more literal translation would say they have eyes full of adulteresses. And he speaks mostly in the masculine here and I'm a man so I'm going to speak that way as well. In other words, they see every woman as an object for their own sexual gratification. When they come to church, they see every woman as a potential partner in adultery. That's what they've got going on. That's the way their eyes have been trained. And let me say this, warning to men. Let me give you a warning based on this idea. Young men, old men, probably women too, but I cannot relate to you. I can relate to the guys though. Hear me clearly. If you are looking at pornography... If you are looking at pornography, you are training yourself to be just like these guys. You are training yourself to have eyes full of adulteresses. To look, You are training yourself by looking at pornography, you are training yourself to look at every woman as a potential partner in adultery. You're training yourself to be, just, you're not training yourself in the way of godliness. You're not training yourself in the way of Christ likeness if you're looking at pornography. You're training yourself to be just like these false teachers, to walk that wide road that leads to destruction. And I'm calling for repentance for all of us. No matter how far we walk down that road, I'm calling for us to repent, to stop walking that way and start walking a new way a way of godliness, a way of righteousness, a way that honors the Lord. That's why Dylan is teaching this class on Sunday nights. We need this. We don't want to walk the way of the false teachers. We don't want to go their way. We know that it leads to death. We want to walk in a way that leads to life in Christ. There's a warning here for us. But rather than heed my warning, rather than hear my pastoral heart, I want you to hear Jesus speak about this. In Matthew chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. These guys have eyes full of adultery and when they gather with the church, they're looking for someone to seduce. And we'd be trained to walk their path by looking at pornography. Rather, let's walk the path that Job tried to walk as he expresses it in chapter 31 when he says, I have made a covenant with my eyes. Then how could I gaze at a virgin? We need to make a covenant with our eyes that they will not be full of adultery. That we will not see every member of the opposite sex or even our own sex as a potential uh, prospect for adultery. That we would have eyes of purity. These false teachers, when they gather with the church, they're looking for someone to seduce. Next, they prey on the unstable. They prey on the unstable. Oh, friends, pay attention here. Peter is saying that these false teachers are picking off those who are not well-grounded in the truth of God's word. They are devouring those who are unfamiliar with and uncommitted to the commands of God as revealed in the scriptures. That's That's why Peter says at the beginning of this letter in verse 12 of chapter 1, Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things even though you already know them and have been established in the truth, which is present with you. That word established is the exact opposite of unstable in the text we're looking at today. And he's saying, I'm gonna remind you of these things. You're already established in them, but I want you to be even more established in them so that you're not among the unstable that these guys are preying on. Read on, he says, I consider it right. As long as I'm in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you'll be able to call these things to mind. Peter is pastorally motivated that these people would not be unstable, but they would be established in the truth. He's giving his life to this. and He's passionate about it. We should be too. Douglas Moo says, It is precisely those who fail to become solidly grounded in Christian truth, whom false teachers find to be easy prey. Like trees with shallow roots, they are easily swayed and toppled. And those are exactly the kind of Christians that the false teachers are picking off left and right. Those who don't know the word, those who don't care anything about obedience, easily swayed and easily toppled. Man, there is a price to pay for that. There's a price to pay for being led away like that. But there is a severe price to pay for leading people like that. And Jesus speaks about this. We just studied this on Sunday night a few weeks ago in Matthew chapter 18. Look at chapter 18, verse 6. Jesus says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me, right? One of these little Christians, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. That's that's these guys that Peter is talking about. Peter is no doubt thinking about this teaching of Jesus as he says this. They pick off the unstable ones and they will pay for that. But don't let yourself be picked off. Read, Read on in Matthew 7. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks, for it's inevitable that stumbling blocks come. But woe to that man through whom the stumbling blocks come. False teachers are making a life out of this. Being a stumbling block and leading the little ones astray, it'd be better, it will be better for them to have a millstone hung around their neck and be thrown in the sea on the day of judgment. They prey on the unstable. Next, they have trained their hearts for greed. Did you see that in the text? It's a super interesting word for training here. It's from the realm of athletics, and it's the word where we get our word gymnasium. It means, in other words, like an athlete, through discipline, Dedication and repetition, these guys have trained their hearts for greed. That's worth giving your life for, right? No, Jesus says, What good is it a man if he gains what good is it for a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? And yet they have trained themselves to gain the world and are forfeiting their souls. As a result, Pastor Peter says they are accursed children. This is the result. This is the warning. They do not live this way and not pay the price, which reminds me of Ephesians chapter 2. And I want you to see Ephesians chapter 2, this business of accursed children. Paul says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, Among them, we too, all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. That's bad news, right? And that's a description of these false teachers and those who follow them in their ways. Here's the good news. We we can't read Ephesians chapter two and stop there, right? Not here, we won't. Read on, it says, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, so that we would walk in them. Ephesians chapter 2 is gold, isn't it? It is honest about the bad news of the gospel, that we are under judgment because of our sin. And it is honest with us about the good news of the gospel. That salvation is available because Christ died for sinners. God, rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved through faith. That's not your doing. It's the gift of God. Right? Hallelujah for that. Hallelujah for that. And some of you need to respond to that with repentance and faith today. With initial repentance and faith or with ongoing repentance and faith. Judgment is coming because of sin, but salvation is available because Christ died for sinners. And then, this last thing about Balaam, I'm going to leave that as a rabbit for you to chase on your own time. But I will say this they have, these false teachers have, like Balaam, gone astray, left the right way. You read about it in Numbers if you want. He's a prophet for hire, he's a fleshly man, he loves unrighteousness, and he's greedy. He's an illustration, Peter says, of the false teachers, their sensuality and their greed, their desire to lead people astray, and their demise as a result. I want you to know that Balaam is a cautionary tale. The story of Balaam is a cautionary tale. It is not just a story about how God can make a donkey talk. There's a lot more going on there than just God has the power to make a donkey talk. Peter is teaching us some of what that story is about. So, I've got three applications for us today. This has been a lot about false teachers, right? Who they are, how they are, and what will happen to them. But what do we do about this? How do we respond to this word from God? I think there are three things we're called to do from this text. Number one, be humble. They are arrogant. Be humble. We are humble. Submit ourselves to authority submit yourself to authority particularly god's authority maybe even more particularly god's authority as revealed in his word submit yourself to the word of god don't be arrogant like the false teachers who say i know what the bible says but when someone says that they are a false teacher like that that is clue number 1 because they are arrogant enough to think that they know something better than the bible to be humble Submit yourself to God's word. Be quiet. That's part of humility, right? That's part of what humility looks like. It looks like being quiet so that we can listen. Be teachable. That's part of being quiet, isn't it? It's part of listening is being teachable. Be like the Bereans. I say this all the time around here. Be like the Bereans. Paul says when he came to town that the Bereans were more noble than the people at Thessalonica because they they heard the word of God, they received it, with readiness, and they examine the scriptures every day to see if it was so. Be like them, be quiet, be teachable, be paying attention. And remember, maybe the maybe the key to being humble, unlike the false teachers, is to remember who you are and what you deserve. Re- remember to rejoice in salvation by grace alone. That you were by nature a child of wrath. And you are now a child of God by grace alone. And when we remember that, we don't strut, right? We we don't strut around as if we are something great like the false teachers do. When we remember that we have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we walk with a limp, walk with humility, Recognizing the gift we've been given. Number one, be humble. Number two, be holy. Be holy. That whole you will know them by their fruits business is a gate that swings both ways. You will know the false teachers by their bad fruit. And you will know true disciples by their good fruit. Right? You will know true disciples by their life. You will know true disciples because they love God. False teachers don't love God. They love themselves. But true disciples love God, and it comes out in their worship and in their service to him. True disciples love their neighbor, right? False teachers don't do that. They love only themselves. But true disciples love their neighbor, especially their brothers. Jesus said to his disciples, they will know that you are mine by the way you love each other. That's fruit, right? They will know that you are mine by the way you love each other. Be holy. Love God and love your neighbor. And hate sin. Hate sin. Live with real confession and real repentance. We will not be perfect. But we will fight. We will fight sin. We will fight for holiness. We will pursue it by his grace. Number one, be humble. Number two, be holy. And number three, be stable. This is really, this is maybe the most pastoral thing I can say to you. They are preying on the unstable. The false teachers, in whatever form they're in, they are preying on the unstable. So be stable, be rooted, be grounded, be established. John Piper said, This is a strong admonition first to establish our own doctrinal stability in the Word but then also to labor seriously to ground our children and all new converts quickly in the truth of Scripture. Let's be a church where we are constantly helping each other to send our roots even deeper into the rock of God's truth. Let's be a church like that. Let's be a church like that where we are constantly helping each other sink our roots deeper into the rock of God's truth so that we will be stable. And we do that partly through expositional preaching, Stand up and explain and apply a portion of God's word. We do that also through our daily personal spiritual discipline of Bible intake. You will not be established, firmly rooted in God's word if you never read it. If you never study it. If you never meditate on it and memorize it. If your Bible is gathering dust, you are easy pickings for the false teachers. That wolf that's prowling around is looking for someone just like you. If you're unstable, not established in the truth. So be humble, be holy, and be stable. Let's stand together and pray. Father, help us to take all this seriously like Peter does. This is not a game. This is not a way to make our life more comfortable or pleasurable, this is life or death stuff. This is eternal life or eternal death stuff that we're talking about today. So help us to take it seriously. And I pray for your people that we will be humble and holy and stable as we walk with each other, as we walk with the Lord Jesus Christ, that you will grow us in these areas for the sake of your name, for the sake of your glory. But we pray also for men and women and boys and girls among us who are accursed children. They currently stand as children of wrath. They are dead in their trespasses and sins. They are walking according to the course of this world. And you can change it, Lord. Only you can change them. You are rich in mercy. You have sent your son to die for sinners. So we ask that you would bring the gospel home today. That you would, by your grace, teach men and women and boys and girls about your holiness and their sinfulness. We pray that you would open their eyes to the sacrifice of Christ in their place. And that you would save them by your grace. Not a result of works, but by your grace so that any boasting is boasting in what you have done. God, save. God, grow. Grow your people. Conform us to the image of Christ, we pray in his name.